0: is part of the media ministry of Cornerstone Church. You can listen to this and other messages on our website at www.cornerstone.org, or by subscribing to our podcast. Today's teaching is by Pastor Daryl Ruiz. We're going to move forward into First John chapter 3. We're going to be in verses 4 through 10 this morning. And the question I want you to keep in mind as I read our text for the morning is this Do true Christians sin? Some of you chuckle at that, and some of you wonder what is the right answer? Uh, keep that question in mind as I read today's passage, first John chapter three, verses four through ten. Do true Christians sin? The Apostle John says this everyone who practices sin also practices lawlessness, and sin is lawlessness. You know that he, that being Jesus, appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him sins. No one who sins has seen him or knows him. Little children, make sure no one deceives you. The one who practices righteousness is righteous, just as he is righteous. The one who practices sin is of the devil, for the devil had sinned from the beginning. The Son of God appeared for this purpose, to destroy the works of the devil. No one who is born of God practices sin, because his seed abides in him and he cannot sin. Because he is born of God. By this, the children of God and the children of the devil are obvious. Anyone who does not practice righteousness is not of God. Or the one who does not love his brother. And let me pray for us as we try and untangle this knot. Heavenly Father and Holy Spirit, we ask that you would grant us wisdom and discernment, as we dig into your word and as we seek to find truth. we ask in your Son's name. Amen. The scary part of this passage is that it sounds like on the face of it, if not at the very depths of it, that Christians, true Christians, real Christians should not sin. And if you're like me, if you read this passage and you take it for face value, if, if you if you if you just read it, I mean, it, it sounds like the answer to my initial question is do true Christians do do real genuine Christians sin? the answer would be. Well, no, well uh, the scary part of that is is that we have to then then we have to back up and ask ourselves, well, then what about me? Where does that Where does that leave me? Now I've got to call into question whether I am a true Christian or a real Christian or a genuine Christian myself, yourself, right? let me um, let me add more weight to that question by giving you. Some other passages of scripture or highlighting a little bit of what we just read so that you you feel the weight of this tension even more in 1st John 2. And I'm just going to stay in John. I'm not even going to go outside of John, which we could do. But even back in 1st John, chapter two, verse three, you remember he said, by this, we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. It seemed to indicate we don't keep His commandments, we're not His. That we have not come to know Him. Chapter 3, verse 6, as we just read, No one who abides in Him sins. No one who sins has seen Him or knows Him. And again in 3.9, No one who is born of God practices sin because His seed, which we could very well understand to be the Holy Spirit, abides in Him and He cannot sin because He is born of God. It's the same thing you'll see later in chapter 5, verse 18. We know that no one who is born of God sins. Is it getting heavier? I think so. 1 John 4, 8, just a little bit further from where we are this morning. The one who does not love does not know God, for God is love. As if to say, loving others is the evidence that you know God. If you don't love others, if you don't love people, then you don't know God. Now, there's there's a danger at this point as we read these passages and as we initially and I think naturally start to think to ourselves, Christians, uh, well, I don't know about myself now because I got some sin. Anybody else? So our heart starts to get torn a little bit. Our mind starts to race. Well, where does that leave me? These are dangerous passages because um, they can easily be taken and not taken in consideration of all the passages that surround them or other passages even outside of this letter. It, there's a danger at this point. I had a guy uh, actually read me these passages in a booth at McDonald's uh, a couple of years ago. Uh, he was he and his family were. Members of this church. But he wanted me to understand that the word of God says that, that I, if I am a true Christian, should not sin. And that he, as a true Christian, does not sin. And that I should be, as pastor of this church, preaching that if you are a true Christian, you should never sin. And I tried to help him untangle that knot a little bit. But the knot was pretty, was pretty big in his heart. Um, he had some other tendencies toward legalism going on in his heart. He, his wife uh, was a talented pianist and, um, it uh, offered and asked for her to play on several occasions and he would not allow it because he didn't, uh, not that he didn't believe she was, uh, gifted and, uh, that she could offer it unto the Lord, but because he didn't want, uh, her to be on stage or to be seen on stage. And specifically, he didn't want men looking at her while she was on stage. And uh, so you could you you could even just by those couple of indicators, since there's some legalism, there's there's some there's some there's some things in in those words that just don't sound like the God that we were we were taught about. It doesn't sound like grace. But what do we do? What do we do with these passages? What do we do with the passages that he read me? But he left, by the way, I'm not telling you a story about somebody who's sitting in here. They've, they've since moved on because I sinned and uh, that wasn't acceptable. Um, and I say that to, to just give you a real-life illustration that you've got to figure out what you're going to do with passages like this. Amen? And maybe you don't know right now. I hope by the end of this, this morning you'll, you'll know what to do with passages like this. Because it would seem that the Apostle John sounds very uh, very perfectionistic. As I read these passages, right, like that, he's calling us to be perfect, and there's some there's something that's attractive about that, right? Um, but then there's something that seems unrealistic about it as well. You just know somewhere instinctively in your own heart and in your own soul that something is unrealistic about that. So let me let me read to you in the very same letter passages that seem to say. The complete opposite. OK, so we've read the passages and I've heaped upon you the passages that would that would seem to say to you that you should not, as a Christian, sin at all. If you do, you're not his. All right. So you have felt the way to that. Now, let me out of the same mouth, out of out of the same letter from the same apostle, not in some other letter, even let me out of the same letter give you what John has to say that's the, the flip side of the coin maybe. And then we've got to figure out what to do with both of these. There are other verses in First John that he would seem to say that we do sin. Like First John chapter 1 verses 8 through 10. Just listen, you don't have to flip if you don't want to, but you certainly can. If we say that we have no sin, well, it gets right to the point, right to our point. We're deceiving ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, which infers that we do have sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. Now, that is true when we are out of Christ and that we are confessing our initial sin, but it's also true when we are in Christ. This, this letter is written to Christians. The we of verse 9 is believers, we must confess our sins because we do sin. You tracking with me? Move on to chapter 2. 1 John chapter 2 verse 1. My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. The inference is, is that you have the tendency to sin. And if anyone sins, if anyone sins, carries with it the inference is that you're going to. what we do. So, if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father. There's good news, Jesus Christ, the righteous. I mean, what he seems to say there is that if anyone does sin, we have an advocate. So, uh, that leaves room for the fact that we, we must, at some point, then, therefore, sin. We can't be sinless for those verses to be needed in John's writing. The aim is that we, the aim is not that we do not sin, but the reality is that we do sin. Okay? Uh, let me move on first John chapter 3 verse 2 beloved now we are children of God we saw this last week and it is uh, and it is not excuse me and it has not appeared as yet what we will be the point there is, is that we're not we're not yet what we're going to be which leaves room in our life right now for mistakes right for sin we're not yet what we Will be. We know that when He appears, Jesus, we will be like Him because we will see Him just as He is. So when Jesus appears, the, the righteous one, the perfect one, we will finally be like Him, meaning that we're not yet like Him. You, you tracking? All right. 1 John chapter 5, let me jump past our passage. If anyone sees his brother committing sin or committing a sin, your translation may say, it can go either way. You don't have to have that article of A in there. If anyone sees his brother committing sin, not leading to death, he shall ask and God will for him give life to those who commit sin, not leading to death. Let me just put on the side for right now what it means that sin not leading to death or the sin leading to death. We'll get to that when we get to chapter 5, okay? There is, however, a, he continues, a sin leading to death. I do not say that he should make a request for this. All unrighteousness is sin. All unrighteousness is sin. And there is a sin not leading to death. So uh, the last verse seems to be targeted pointedly to perfectionists who would say all sinning is equally damning and only, uh, the only person who can escape judgment is the one who commits no sin. Well, that can't be true because John emphatically says in 17b, there is a sin that does not lead to death. So verses on the one hand, that seem to say in, in, in the same letter, that we don't sin. And verses in the other hand, that seem to say, "Of course we do. Of course we do. So what do we do what do we do with today's text in particular? First John chapter three, verses four through 10, verses that would seem to indicate that if we are His, if we are children of God, then we don't sin. What do we do with those verses? What do we do when he says no one who abides in him sins? Verse six, no one who sins has either seen him or known him. And What do we do when he says in verse nine that no one who is born of God practices sin? You know, if someone were to sit you down at McDonald's and have questions about the gospel, have questions about the salvation you've received. And they were to read these in fear that they could never measure up because they could never be sinless. Uh, What would you do? What would you say to these words of the Apostle John? Let me give you a couple things that are helpful in these verses that I think help us to untangle them, to untie the knots. Um, One you can pick out probably yourself pretty easily, and the other you won't be able to see. The first is this. The use of the word practice implies an ongoing routine. Did you notice the word The ones who practice sin. The ones who practice righteousness. The idea of practicing something means an ongoing activity. If you played sports or if you played an instrument and you set yourself to practice in that endeavor, then you understand that what practice means is that you are not what you want to be. Practice means that you are yet to be what the ideal might be. You're not in the NFL yet. You have to daily practice. It's an ongoing situation. And so by using the word practice, maybe we can then infer, I think rightly, that John is not saying that we never commit sin, but that that there is this ongoing lifestyle of sin that maybe he's talking about. Second, and this is the not so obvious one, when he uses the word sin here in the Greek it's in the Greek present tense which carries with it not just the idea of the here and now present but this idea of ongoing continuous action. So let me let me read one of these verses for you. No one verse 6 who abides in him sins Now, does that mean ever or does it mean in the present tense of the Greek? No one who abides in him goes on in continuous sin, lives in a habitual state of unrepentant sin. I think that makes better sense on the both hands. Okay, so a couple ways to help you navigate through this passage here. One, it's the Greek and you don't see that plainly in your English language. But when he says those who, those who sin, the implication is that those who are going on in a continual, habitual way, living their life in sin, in an unrepentant way. Their life is characterized more by sin than it is by righteousness. Okay? The other thing that is helpful, I think you do see more clearly, is that when he uses this word practice, I think it helps us out. For the guy who's just spending his life, practicing towards righteousness, it makes sense that, that he's been bought by the righteous one. It makes sense that that's where his heart is. For the one who is spending his life, who seems to be practicing evil, it would just then lend itself to make sense that, that, that he's still stuck in that sin. John Piper, pastor and theologian, answers our concern maybe better than I can. He says it this way as a response to this passage. This probably means that in John's mind, what is impossible for the Christian is not sin. Sin's not impossible for the Christian. But a life of unchanged continuation in sin. The same as when he was not born again of God. That's the impossibility. In view of all his, uh, in view of all his insistence that Christians do sin, all those passages we read on the other hand, we can't take these verses to mean Christians don't sin at all. We should take them to mean that Christians don't go on sinning without conflict and confession. Christians see it, i.e. their sin, hate it, confess it, and fight it. And they do so with increasing vigilance as they grow up into Christ, as they mature, as they move on in their journey with Jesus. So, one, I think the word practice tips us off here. that John's not, John's not talking about just a single sin. That you will never have sin. Two, I think that the Greek tense obviously helps us out here. This implication of ongoing continuous action in the word sin. No one who abides in him goes on continually sinning. No one who goes on continually sinning has seen him or knows him. I and mean, that's, that's big. Number three, let me give you a, a bonus thing here. John seems to be very careful not to imply that we are in a relationship with God because we do not sin. Let me say that again. He seems to be very careful to imply that we are not in a relationship with God because we are not sinning. In fact, he makes the reverse point. And here's the reverse point. We are in a relationship with God, so then we are able subsequently to not sin. Now, now maybe that's a little tangled still in your head. Let me read you a couple verses Chapter three, verse nine. Listen, no one who is born of God, born of God, that's the state that he says that you would be in. Nobody who's in that state practices sin because his seed abides in him. The Holy Spirit abides in him. That's the state. So it's an impossibility for for ongoing sin to abide in this person because you got you got the seed of God abiding in this person. And then he he repeats himself uh, at risk of being redundant in the same verse. And he cannot sin. Why can he not sin? Because he is born of God. So which comes first? You being born of God, you being born again, therefore tells us that you you cannot continue in this sin. It's not the reverse. It's not that John is trying to say here or, or anywhere in this letter or any of his other letters or any of the other New Testament writers, or even the Old Testament writers, ever applied that you stop sinning and therefore you become born again. That's not how the system works. That's not how grace works. There would be no need for grace. That would be your earned righteousness. Buckle up, pull yourself up by your bootstraps, knuckle down, stop sinning to a degree enough that God will be pleased with you in your performance, and now He will allow you to be righteous, born again. That's not how it works. No one who is born of God practices sin. It just Those things don't correlate because it doesn't come with the new nature that you get being born of God. Chapter 3, verse 14, just a little further than we are. We know that we have passed out of death into life. How do we know? Because we love the brethren. The activity that we do, The love that we have for each other, the things that we that we pour ourselves into and the things that we restrict ourselves from, i.e. those sinful things, they come because we have passed all the way past tense out of sin and death into life. All right. Uh, By the way, this idea of being born again, maybe you've never really considered it. I've talked about this a little bit before but but think on this idea of being born again that he uses here in his in his letter because it helps it helps inform us as to what he's trying to say here is he trying to say that to be a christian we got to we have to first cut out sin and to be a christian down the road in our journey we have to make sure that sin never comes back i mean is that what he's saying is that how we become born again no that doesn't jive with the whole idea of being born again i mean how many of you had a part in your birth aside from just showing up anybody no i didn't think so i mean nobody nobody climbed out at their birth sorry for the visual but it just doesn't happen that way you were check this out that god chooses his illustrations carefully i think and it's amazing how salvation fits with the whole story of creation you were delivered were you not your salvation is a story of a delivery, not a climb. That's what it means to be born again. It's funny, sometimes those of you who share the gospel, you will know that um, as you talk to people, sometimes you'll find out that many people believe in God. Hey, what do you think about God? You believe in God? You believe in heaven? Yeah, I believe in heaven. You believe, you believe in God? Yeah, what do you think about Jesus? It's great. I trust Jesus. You really, uh, over over the years, if you're going to share the gospel, if you're going to share the, the the truth of the gospel, that it is by grace, faith, not of yourselves. If you're if you're going to share that gospel, then you you really got to ask some really specific questions. And I've found that the best, probably, question you can ask to really get at the heart of the matter as to whether or not somebody who is confessing that they believe in God, they believe in heaven or hell, that they trust in Jesus, etc., uh, if they're really genuine, is the question, have you been born again? Partly because it's just an odd thought for our modern times. I mean, it's not something we think about very often, right? I mean, it's a strange, miraculous picture. What do you mean to be born again? Partially, I like I like to ask it because it just seems so... Uh, churchy and religious to people and it really causes them to ask you know a a lot of people who would confess that they they believe in something or even that they they believe jesus was you know a a historical figure etc will will stop short of saying that you actually need to be born again it's too exclusive it's too specific but to ask that question have you been born again It, it really gets to the heart of the matter because you've got to understand, well, why do I have to be born again? And you've got to understand sin, and you've got to understand the debt. You've got to understand the process that, that you can't climb out. You must be delivered. So, as a reminder between the difference of religion and Christianity, let's think about this for a moment. In all religions of the world, in, in all aspects of, that could be put under the umbrella of religion, you have to understand that those things are man-made. The idea of religion is that man is trying to find a way to appease God. I mean, that's the that's the, just the, the realistic concept of what religion is. There's no argument about that. There's no debate about that. Religion historically is man trying to find his way to God and how, how am I going to appease the creator God? And what are my efforts going to be? That That's the religious activity of men. So there are many different religions out there. Now that's different than biblical Christianity. I'm not even just going to say Christianity because nowadays you have to clarify biblical Christianity. What the Bible says about what we're trying to do as Christians, it's different than religion. Okay? And I think this will be helpful to our overall discussion. Religion is how you try and impress God, the things that you might do that will that will show yourself impressive to God or worthy to be accepted by God. Those are are man-made religious things. Christianity takes man out of the equation as the main character. Christianity says that God is the main character of the story. And he is the main actor and influencer of the story. Biblical Christianity says it's not about how I will perform to appease God or to impress God with my activity. Biblical Christianity essentially says what I know about myself is that I'm in complete darkness. And on top of that, I'm blind. And so if I'm going to find my way out of here, I need someone who will reach into the darkness and guide me out. Someone who will deliver me. Someone who will save me. And so if you were to imagine your, your, your lostness as a person drowning, it's not that you would be at the top of the water gasping for air and barely holding yourself up and hoping to reach out for the life preserver that someone's going to toss to you and that you could cooperate with the person who is trying to help you to be saved. No, the picture of your salvation in terms of you drowning is that you're, you're already underneath the water and your lungs are full and there's no hope. Someone has to come in, pull you out while you are limp and helpless and pump the water out of your gut. That would be a better picture of what salvation is. That's Christianity as compared to just simply religion. All right, let's move into, let's move into concluding this, wrapping it up. Why, why such strong language here by John? I mean, why on the one hand does it seem like this? And why on the other hand does it seem like this? And even though we've untangled it a little bit with some with some help from the terms that he uses, even though we've untangled it a little bit as we understand what, what salvation is overall, that salvation is not about you cutting your sin out and helping yourself and saving yourself and impressing God enough by your efforts that he would say, That guy, he's trying pretty hard. Let's let's include him. And so while all those things help us out to understand what John would say here in pretty strong language to the fact that we, we, we ought not to be in sin, we still gotta ask ourselves, Well, why? What is he doing here? I, I think I would say you gotta remember the occasion for John's writing. That's always a good thing to do as you're reading through the letters especially of the New Testament. Why was he writing? What was the occasion? What's going on in the church that he wrote to? And how does that parallel with what, what goes on in our church even? What goes on in our hearts and in our minds? What was going on, you'll remember, as John wrote this letter, is that there were those who had, who had come to Christ who were trying to, to walk through their Christianity and figure out what it means now to be in Christ. And there are also those who are not yet in Christ but think they're in Christ and they're still trying to do the religious thing, right? And not the grace, faith, Christian thing. And now there's some confusion. Who's right? There were those in the church that would say you can do whatever you like with your material body, with your physical body, because it's only, it's only the spiritual part of you that really matters. After all, Jesus was really only a spirit himself. He wasn't physical, he wasn't material, he wasn't, he wasn't in the human flesh. To which, of course, John would say, of course he was in the flesh. That's important, and he fights for that in this letter. And so, therefore, of course, it does matter what you do in the flesh. We can't separate the spiritual and the material. It doesn't work that way. You can't just live however you want to live with your physical body, continuing to do whatever sins you want to do, to to please yourself and and say that your spiritual over here is good to go. And okay, it doesn't work that way. John John has to make that clear to this church. John is dealing with some who haven't been born again. As some of his readers, some who were sitting in that congregation, some who were sitting there under the lampstand as they gathered around to hear what the, the last remaining apostle had to say, some of them who were listening were not in Christ. They were not born again. They were still they were still seeking to appease God or to please God by their own religious efforts, by their attendance, by their deeds, by what they abstained from, perhaps. We know this because he would speak to those who were still in their sin, in that they were happy to go on in blatant patterns of unrepentant sin. And He would say that that just doesn't match up with Christianity. It's it's maybe good religion. You can work it out in in man-made religion, but it doesn't jive with biblical Christianity. And so he's, he's dealing with some who haven't been born again, but he's also dealing and talking to those who have been born again in the same place, in the same gathering. And they're being tempted by those who continue to sin. So you got a guy over here and he's saying, listen... This whole thing, I mean, this is great. Jesus came and, you know, it's, it's a spiritual deal. And, I'm, you know, uh, he's transformed me from the inside out. But really, the outside doesn't really matter. I can continue doing whatever I want to do. I can go here. I can go there. I can participate in this, that or the other. And physically, it doesn't really matter. Because after all, Jesus wasn't here in the flesh. It was just a spiritual thing. And so they just got this whole convoluted argument as to why they can just continue to do whatever they want to do. And so now they're saying to those who have have truly been born again, who instinctively know, man, that doesn't seem right. That we can just keep doing that? Uh, Something doesn't seem right. And they instinctively, they know it's wrong because they have have the seed of God in them. They've got the Holy Spirit residing in them. They've been born again. They are new creatures. Creatures, (laughs) Creatures, <laughs> new creatures, creations. It's a new word. You can just combine those two, creations. And so John's writing to this church where we've got some confused people. We've got some people who are who are, who are wrong, and we've got some some believers, the little children, who are saying we're well, we're just confused here. I mean, because inside we we instinctively kind of just have this feeling that that doesn't work. And John says, Amen. Your very constitution has been changed. You're not who you were. You have been born anew. You've been redeemed. You've been been saved out of that sin, ongoing, unrepentant lifestyle of sin. That doesn't work in you. It can't be so. That's what he's saying today. It doesn't work that way. And so don't be confused when those people... Who are still there, who who are still practicing just religion, try and say you can continue doing that because, because you can't. You can't. Little children, make sure no one deceives you. The one who practices righteousness is righteous, just as he is righteous. The one who practices sin is of the devil. You see the nature, the difference? Christians are new creations and they can't be happy in sin. Can you sin? Yeah, you can. Remember over here on the other hand? John makes that absolutely clear. You sure can. Can you be happy in it? Can you continue in it? Can you live in sin like you did back before you came to Christ? No, it it, it can't be so. It can't be so. You are a new creation. Question. Why did Jesus come? As we get closer and closer to Christmas... I want this I want this question and, and where I leave it today to maybe just follow you into the holidays. Why did Jesus come? I, I think I think we all we have the basic answer. And that would be to pay for our sins. Amen. He came to pay for my and your sin debt. Pretty clear, right? You've learned it from a small child in Sunday school. But he didn't come just for that. Have I got your attention? (laughs) He didn't come just for that. Look at verse 8 of our passage today. John does a wonderful job of telling us why he writes. Several different places he says, I write to you for this reason. The purpose of my writing is this. And in verse 8 he gives us, on the latter half, an amazing statement. The Son of God appeared for this purpose. Christmas happened for this reason. To destroy the works of the devil. Now what are the works of the devil? Hang on just a minute so we can get to the main point. What are the works of the devil? Look back at verse 5. He's going to use the same phrase. You know that he, what's the word, appeared. It's the same same word used at the end of verse 8. You know that he appeared, and the he here is Jesus, in order to take away, what's the word? Sins. What is the appearance for? The appearance is for a remedy to sin. And in him there is no sin. Look at the, the first half of verse 8. If verse 5 isn't enough to help us understand what the work of the devil is, I think the first half of verse 8 makes it pretty evident. The one who practices sin is of who? The devil. For the devil has what? Sinned from the beginning. Now continue his thinking here as you read this phrase. The Son of God appeared for this purpose, to destroy the works of the devil. What do you think the works of the devil could be defined as in a word? Sin. And so you could read the end of that verse this way. The Son of God appeared for this purpose. To save you from your debt of sin? Of course, yes. But also to destroy sin. Now think about it for a moment because I think there's an important difference in those two things. It's not just sleight of hand. It's not just semantics. I think, I think, there's, I think there's some treasure here in John's words. Jesus appeared, the Son of God appeared for a purpose. We all know that He came so that He could die. We all know that His blood covers us. And so now your debt of sin delivers you and redeems you. Your debt is now covered. And by grace through faith, you can be saved from your sin debt, from the wrath of God to come, Upon your head, because it has been placed upon His Son, and via Jesus, and His appearing, and His death, and His resurrection, you get a ticket to heaven. Amen? You do. That's awesome. But there's more. There's more. Your salvation is from sin not just its penalty. If you want to write something down, that may be the best thing to write down today. Your salvation is from sin and not just sin's penalty. The Son of God appeared for this purpose, to destroy the works of the devil. The Son of God appeared for this purpose, to destroy sin. You remember what he said in chapter 2, verse 1? I think I have it for you here to put on the screen. Chapter 2, verse 1. John tells us why he writes these things. I write these things to you so that you may not... What's the word? Sin. On the one hand, what is the heart of the apostle? That we don't sin. Should Christians sin? No. (laughs) I'm writing these things so that you don't sin. On the other hand, continue the verse. And if anyone sins, what's the implication? You probably will. We have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And he himself is the propitiation for our sins. Now Let me give you five takeaways and we'll be done. If you want to jot these down, it might be worth it. Number one. First thing I would have you take away from our passage today is this. Don't be confused. Christians sin. Do not be confused. Christians sin. We don't like it. It doesn't sit well with us. It weighs heavy on us. Why? Because we've been born again. Our very constitution has changed. It is impossible for ongoing, unrepentant sin to remain in your eye if we are in Christ. It is impossible for ongoing sin to be at home where Jesus lives. Okay? But Christians sin. Don't be confused. Number two. Christ didn't just die to cover sin with His blood. He died to kill sin in you and I. Right here, right now. Your salvation is from sin, not just from the penalty of sin. You weren't saved just so you could have a ticket to heaven. The Son of God appeared so that He might destroy sin now in me, in you. Number three. I think John would say, therefore, don't sin. Don't sin. Christ came so that you could stop sinning. He appeared to destroy sin. Should we continue on in sin then? Even that grace may abound? May it, not, may it not ever be that that could be said of us. Don't sin. Jesus was crucified not just to cover your sins so that you could get to heaven. He died so that He could destroy the power of sin in your life right now. Number four, number four, if you do sin, but don't worry, Christian. Little children, if you do sin, you have an advocate with the Father. Number five, number five, I think this one gives some balance to the previous. Let the comforting knowledge of the fact that you are covered by the blood of Christ motivate you even more to right here, right now, kill your own sin. Let me read that again. Let the comforting knowledge of the fact that you are covered by the blood of Christ motivate you even more to destroy your own sin. Because, after all, isn't that why John says Jesus Appeared in the flesh. Someone once said that sin will take you further than you want to go, keep you longer than you want to stay, and it will cost you more than you want to pay. Can anyone amen that? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, for those of us who have been born again, not by our own doing, but by Your grace, by means only of faith, trusting in the covering of Your Son's shed blood for our debt of sin. For those of us who have been born anew, who have received a new nature, a new constitution, we instinctively know That the sins that that rear their ugly head in our life, they're not who we truly are. They don't feel right. We don't like them. We hate our sin. We with Paul would cry out, wretched man that I am. The things that we want to do, we seem not to be able to do all the time. And the things that we we never want to do, we keep finding ourselves tripping and falling over them. Lord, help us. That is our confession. The idea that we could continue in ongoing sin, Lord, it's it's the Loch Ness monster. It's the abominable snowman. It sounds maybe it sounds impressive, but but it's not in Scripture. We can't find it ever. There's no evidence of it. Not in real life. Not in the truth of the gospel. And so for the Christians who are confused, I pray John's words would give them comfort. If they, if, they put, if they put us on edge to start, Lord, that's okay. It's a good thing to take inventory of our own heart and of our own life. To not let sin take up residence where your son resides in our very own heart and life. So we continually repent of our sins. And the longer we walk with you, Lord, we pray that sin gets further and fewer between in our life. For those who would say we can continue enjoying our sin, living in our sin, abiding in our sin, we say hogwash. May it never be. And Lord, this pastor praise that You would seal it to His heart like never before. The fact that Your Son has appeared to us not only to provide a means to our eternal security and salvation, but He has appeared to destroy the very sin that has killed us and rendered us lifeless, dead, hopeless. So that as we now live in Christ. We live no longer under the power of the sin that once ruled us. We live free. We live free of its control. And we can say no. And we can overcome by the blood of the Lamb. Thank you that your Son appeared to save us. Not just from the wrath that would come upon us, to save us from the sin that indwells us. Seal that truth to our heart today, Lord. And as an umbrella for all of the truth that we've learned this morning, seal to our hearts, Lord, that it is your great love that makes all of this true. For you so loved this world that you gave your Son and whosoever merely believes in Him, trusts in Him, will be born again. Lord, over the next uh, just few brief moments, use Your Holy Spirit to um, to do the work in the in the crevices, in the folds of our heart that that maybe don't have light shed upon them very often. So that we might leave this place motivated not to sin. For the glory of your Son, our cornerstone, we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening today.